0: Welcome to Science Night, presented by the River Power Podcast. Hi everybody, it is James. Thank you for coming back to the second episode of the Science Night Podcast. This is our follow-up episode, where we talk about the life and work of Mary Leakey. If you are a little bit confused about what a follow-up episode is, I suggest you go back and listen to our interview episode with Dr. Kathleen Muldoon. It is episode one, and it is quite good. The follow-up episodes are going to be a little bit shorter, and they're designed to focus on one aspect of our interviewee's work. Sometimes it'll be a basic scientific principle. Other times maybe we'll look at a piece of applied research. And in the case of this episode, we're going to highlight a person that is fundamental to the field of our interviewee, but you may not know about them, and you totally should. If there's something that you really want us to cover, or if you're a scientist and really want to talk to me. Send me an email to scinight at gmail.com. That is S C I N I G H T at gmail.com. Without further ado, please enjoy our presentation on the life and work of Mary Leakey. Mary Leakey is a Titan in the world of archaeology and paleoanthropology. Her methodical work and amazing finds push the science forward dramatically. But most of you have probably never heard of her, and that's kind of the problem. Only the landmark discoveries where her contribution is undeniable tend to break through the noise. Most of the other time, she's referred to as Lewis Leakey's wife Mary Leakey was a woman in a field dominated by men. And I don't say that to devalue her or her work in any way, but to put it into a broader context as to why she is so absent in our modern popular culture. When there is a modern recounting of Mary Leakey the scientist, the meticulousness that she brought to field excavations is highlighted, but the person is portrayed as cold and demanding. I hope with this episode of Science Night, we can paint a more vibrant picture of this amazing person. Mary Nicol was born on February 6, 1913 in London. And while this episode is going to primarily focus on her work in Africa, I feel we would be doing a disservice to the person whose life was spent looking for humanity's origins by not at least recounting hers. She was the daughter of Erskine and Cecilia Nickel. Her father was a painter of moderate success who would make annual excursions into Europe to create new works and then return to London in hopes of selling them. This meant that Mary's early life was spent traveling, mainly in France, Italy, and Switzerland, which meant there was little time spent in one location and no formal schooling. Her father did attempt to educate her by teaching her to read Alice in Wonderland and Robinson Crusoe. He also attempted to teach her arithmetic, but in Mary's own words was less successful. It was during a stay at Les in southwest France in 1925 that she first experienced an archaeological site. Family friend Elie Peroni was excavating the caves in Lauguerie-Haute, and allowed Mary and her father to visit. She describes the experience in her autobiography, Disclosing the Past. Now I shudder at the crudeness of his methods. I can't even remember seeing him sieve the buckets of spoil that his workmen so rapidly dug out and brought to him. He simply picked out the pieces that could easily be seen and tipped the rest down the bank toward the Veser for the river to dispose of it in due course. She received permission to dig through the spoil piles on her own, and with every Magdalenian tool and fragment of a flint scraper her love of the science of archaeology grew into what would become a lifelong passion. During these foundational years traveling with her mother and father, you begin to see the development of many traits that would become fundamental to her adult life and work. Mainly, a profound love of animals, especially dogs. A methodical approach to her work in the field, and a general unfondness for time spent in Italy, due mainly to the fact that she nearly died from dysentery while there. Recounting of that time, she said, All things considered, the Italian visit cannot be regarded, from my point of view, as a success. While in her own retelling, her early life seems nearly idyllic, But it was by no means free from strife. Her family was rarely on steady ground financially, but she recalled her time with her father very fondly. Tragedy soon came to the Nickel family when Erskine became seriously ill in the spring of 1926 and died soon after. Mary was shattered, stating, I was barely thirteen and I had just lost forever the best person in the world. She had lost her father and best friend, and returned to London with her mother. Through a combination of the quality of her now late father's work and the generosity of his friend's promotion, the Nicol family was able to accumulate enough money through the sale of Erskine's remaining paintings to find a place to live and for Mary to begin her formal education. We won't cover the entire period of Mary's education and training, but it must be noted that she did not follow the typical path for an academic. Mary hated her time at local convent schools, and would often chew on soap so as to appear to be foaming at the mouth. She was eventually expelled from the Ursuline Convent School in Wimbledon for causing a minor explosion in the chemistry lab, stating, At least I ended my school career with a big bang. In her own account of this period of her life, the only thing that received much attention was the acquisition of her first Dalmatian dog, stating, Jarix was a Dalmatian, my very first. That was about 55 years ago, and with hardly a break, I have had one or more Dalmatians ever since. In 1930, Mary began attending lectures in geology and archaeology at University College and the London Museum, respectively. At this time, she was determined to find her way as a field archaeologist and began writing letters to everyone she could think of, eventually finding a place at Mortimer Wheeler's, Verilamium site, and Dorothy Liddell's Hembury site. In the off-season, she would illustrate some of the artifacts. Her skill in this aspect led to Gertrude Captain Thompson paying her to illustrate the tools found at her site at Fayum in Egypt. Her time with Gertrude fully formed what she envisioned for herself in archaeology, stating, Gertrude was the epitome of that remarkable breed of English ladies. Who for archaeology's sake, would go out alone into harsh desert environments, and by determination, skill, expertise, and endurance, achieve discoveries of major and permanent importance." It was also Gertrude that introduced Mary to Louis Leakey, who was looking for an illustrator for his book Adam's Ancestors, detailing his work at Olduvai Gorge. The two met in 1933 at his lecture at the Royal Anthropological Society in London. Mary almost decided to not go to the lecture, but she wanted to find out more about Lewis and his work in Africa, specifically his site at Olduvai Gorge in Tanzania. While working on Lewis's book, the two fell in love. Unfortunately, Lewis was still married to his first wife, Frida. It must also be noted that Mary's mother hated Lewis. Of this, Mary remembered, My mother remained in a state of total dismay and set herself to change my mind right up to the time Lewis and I got married. And even after, she never really reconciled herself to the situation. After traveling and working together for two years in Africa and England, the two were married on December 24, 1936 in the town of Ware, England. Mary Nickel wanted so badly to be a field archaeologist, and as Mary Leakey, she would go on to move the science forward in ways she would never have imagined. Before we take a closer look at Mary's career, we're going to have to clear up a few things. The popular perception of Mary Leakey in the field was of somebody who was cold and demanding, and it is true that she expected her team to take the work seriously. She'd often exclaim, you have to be careful we're not digging potatoes. But she never expected more of people than she did of herself. It seems that most of the negativity comes from those who were asked to leave her site or who aim to diminish Mary's legacy to increase their own. To get a firsthand account of Mary Leakey from later in her career, I talked with Charles Musiba, professor of anthropology at the University of Colorado, Denver, and one of the many who Mary Leakey mentored early in his career. The description I got was totally different than the popular perception. And Dr. Masiba talked about a woman that was encouraging and open with her team. Someone that thought of her field site as her home while Lewis was usually in Nairobi. He also talked about her contributions to the field that are less well-reported. The major one being the willingness to bring on experts to gain a deeper understanding of the work she's doing, and not pushing people out with whom she disagreed. I mean, let's put it simply, she pushed the science forward by having the humility to take a back seat when it was needed. Now that you know a little bit more about the life of Mary Leakey and what drove her to become a field archeologist, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about her work. And we could do an entire series covering the work of Mary Leakey. She's an amazing woman. But the remainder of this episode will cover three of her major finds Proconsul. The afternoon sun baked the hills of the Kaswanga site on Rusinga Island on October 2, 1948. The 10-mile Long Island, which lay just miles south of the equator in the northeast portion of Lake Victoria, is a rich site for fossils of extinct species from the Miocene, which ranged from 23 to 5 million years ago. Having recently benefited from the donation of American-born businessman Charles Boise, Mary and Louis Leakey were camped on the western side of the island. Nearing the end of their planned stay. As her husband Lewis settled in to excavate the fossil of an extinct crocodile, Mary began exploring the slopes further in the hope of finding evidence of ape fossils from that period. Of what followed, she said, I had not long left Lewis when I saw some interesting looking bone fragments lying on the sloping surface, and, letting my eyes travel upward, I saw a tooth section. Had a hominid look. Could it be? A few moments later, I was shouting for Lewis as loud as I could, and he was coming running. What she found was indeed incredible. After several days of meticulous excavation and reassembly, what Mary saw staring back at her was the face, including upper and lower jaws, and a full set of teeth of a species of proconsul, This species had to this point only been known in bits and pieces, and while the back of the skull Mary had found was at this point missing, it was the most complete specimen of the species, and the first time anyone on earth had looked at the face of a proconsul in around 18 million years. Mary made the long journey from Kenya to London holding the box containing her precious find on her lap for the duration, until finally turning it over to Legros Clark at his lab in Oxford. This find had a profound impact on the science we now call biological anthropology in both the academic and public sphere. The concrete impact was international recognition for Mary Ann Lewis a series of grants to continue their work in Kenya through the 1950s, and a donation large enough to purchase a boat for continued travel to and from Rusinga, named the Miocene Lady. So what was Proconsul and why does it matter? Proconsul is one of a number of extinct ape species that lived between 17 and 20 million years ago during the Miocene period. This is very early in the evolutionary lineage of apes and it had the anatomy of something that seemed very monkey-like with some key ape features. It had long curved fingers, arms and legs of equal length, and a pronograde posture, meaning they moved on all four limbs. These are very monkey-like characteristics. And it would likely have moved on top of branches in its forested habitat just like a monkey does today and it's kind of interesting when you think of that childhood uh, playground equipment that we call monkey bars a monkey would never interact with that piece of equipment like an ape would which is what we do additionally It had a long, flexible spine that differs from the stiff, short spine of modern apes, which would have allowed proconsul to gallop, which is something we cannot do. However, it did have some of the defining characteristics of an ape. Specifically, it lacked a tail. And it had the dental pattern of two incisors, one canine, two premolars, and three molars that are the hallmark of apes. Additionally, it had very broad incisors, just like we do, and so do gorillas, chimpanzees, bonobos, and orangutans. The major impact of this find is the location firmly centers the evolution of apes in Africa. Paranthropus Boise Eye, July 17, 1959, Olduvai Gorge, Tanzania. With her husband in bed, sick with the flu, Mary Leakey, with Sally and Victoria, her two Dalmatians, traveled to the far west of the site known as FLK, named for Lewis's first wife, Frida. It had been a less-than-productive season, with a good portion of their research money taken up with a fruitless expedition 45 kilometers south to a potential site named Lyotoli. With money running out, there would be precious few opportunities to find the hominid species they were sure was waiting to be uncovered. After a while of searching, something caught the keen eyes of Mary. Rather than a loose piece of fossil bone scattered on the surface, as was quite common at this site, something was sticking out of the ground that continued below the surface. Of this pivotal moment in her life, Mary said, It seemed to be part of a skull, including a mastoid process, the bony projection below the ear. It had a hominid look, but the bone seemed enormously thick too thick, surely. I carefully brushed away a little of the deposit, and then I could see parts of two large teeth in place in the upper jaw. They were hominid. It was a hominid skull. Though we were not immediately aware of it, the whole nature of our research operation at Alduvai was about to alter drastically, and we ourselves were going to be profoundly affected. Mary rushed back to camp, by accounts yelling, I've got him. By luck, a film crew was scheduled to arrive shortly, and it was decided to excavate the specimen that would become Olduvai hominin 5, or OH5, while being filmed. This captured the public's imagination, and there was much fanfare about the finding of this missing link. Lewis and Mary had been collecting and cataloging stone tools in this area for years, and with this find, they thought they'd finally found the toolmaker. Later finds have moved that honor to the larger-brained Homo habilis, which shared the site during the time of OH5. However, current work in South Africa may reveal that they were not that wholly incorrect in this interpretation. OH5 was placed in the genus Zinganthropus, with Zinj being the medieval Arabic word for the region, and Anthropus referring to its human qualities. The species name Boisei is in honor of their longtime benefactor Charles Boise and a quick search of the headlines, publications, and newsreels from this time show the extent of the Xenxanthropist's discovery. However, largely absent is the mention of Mary Leakey's work. This is a major oversight, as Mary was the discoverer, and her meticulous work in the excavation, reconstruction, and the detailed field notes that maintain the context of this find allowing it to be compared to other finds dramatically increased its scientific value. And it's either ironic or tragic that this major find of Mary's, popularly attributed to her husband, was found in a site dedicated to Lewis's ex-wife, Frida. The nickname of OH5, Zinge, is all that remains of its original genus, Zinjanthropus. It is now housed in the Australopithecus or Paranthropus genus, depending on your source. And like all Australopiths, it walked upright on two feet, just like us. This species of hominid had massive teeth and huge chewing muscles, easily twice the size of ours which led to the nickname Nutcracker Man, which Mary Leakey hated, referring to OH5 with the more endearing moniker, My Dear Boy. Chemical isotopic analysis of their remains show that they were eating tough, fibrous food from a grassland environment. And it has to be said that Zinja's evolutionary lineage does not lead to us, but with the more recent discovery of Homo habilis, it helps us understand how hominids adapted to exploit their ecological niche. Zinja's larger body, smaller brain, and huge chewing muscles and teeth let it feast on the vegetation that must have been abundant in that location at that time. In fact, It's been described in terms of a bipedal cow grazing on grasses while the larger-brained Homo habilis required more calorically dense food to sustain it. And its downfall came when the environment changed and the specialized Paranthropus or Australopithecus boisei could not adapt and soon died out. This find did, however, cement the origins of hominids in Africa, which has been confirmed with every new find of older members of our lineage. It's also dramatically increased the prestige of the Leakey family and began the long and fruitful relationship with the National Geographic Society. The Liatoli Trackway 3.6 3.6 million years ago, as the rainy season was about to commence, ash from a recent volcanic eruption covered the ground of what will come to be known as Liatoli, Tanzania. The first drops of rain mixed with this fine layer of sediment to create a layer with the consistency of wet sand, able to hold the impression of those that traveled over it. And they did, in large quantity. Footprints from 20 species of animals, large and small, cover the area. Of these, two individuals of the species Australopithecus afarensis, the most famous specimen of which is named Lucy, moved in a straight line, obviously with a destination in mind. They paused briefly, and then continued along their way. The heat of the sun soon preserved the definition of these prints hardening the mushy surface into one resembling dried concrete. Soon after, another eruption covered the tracks, preserving them. So it was that the evidence passed out of memory until being discovered in a most unusual way. Fast forward to 1976. Following the death of her husband Lewis in 1972, and the conclusion of her work at Alduvai in 1974, Mary Leakey moved her attention to a site about 30 miles south in Liatoli. The site was initially briefly surveyed by Lewis back in 1935, but after misidentifying some hominid teeth as those of a different primate, he decided there was little of interest at this location. By this time, the geological sequences have been established, and Mary's team busied themselves meticulously combing through the site for evidence of hominid activity. Of the next major find at Liatoli, Mary recalled, as is often the case with important finds, the first of these animal tracks came to light in a rather unlikely way. Jonah Western, Kay Behrensmeyer, and Andrew Hill were visiting us and one afternoon were returning to camp after a long walk around the principal exposures. For some reason, they amused themselves by throwing lumps of dried elephant dung at each other and there certainly was plenty of it around the flat open space where they were. Andrew fell down in the process and noted that he was lying on a hard surface which appeared to contain ancient animal footprints. Because of the careful geological analysis early in the days of this site, two further trackways were also identified. The job of carefully identifying, uncovering, and documenting the various prints was extremely difficult. Mary, against the advice of some of the members of her team, brought in people to take stereophotographic images in addition to the latex casts. This decision has dramatically increased the scholarship of this find, especially using modern technology. During this time, Mary and her team uncovered four footprints that appeared to be hominid. This was the beginning of the discovery of the scene described earlier. The significance of this find is easy to overlook. I mean, what can footprints tell us other than something traveled this way? This find shows us a definite heel strike, and something called a toe-off, which means the heel of the foot contacted the ground first, the weight transferred across the middle of the foot, with the big toe leaving the ground last. Without knowing anything else about this animal, that's enough information to confirm that while traveling on land, it was walking more like a human than a chimpanzee, which would be on all fours. At this point in the study of human evolution, the thought of what evolved first, bipedalism or large brains, was hotly debated. These footprints looking so much like our own, and from a time and species that did not yet develop the large brain that is the hallmark of our genus went a long way to settle that debate, which was further confirmed with the discovery of the genus Artipithecus in 1992. The careful excavation, methodical geological survey, and foresight to bring in the experts to document the find transformed this from a pair of footprints into a major find. And honestly, I could talk about the Liatoli Trackway and its significance for an entire episode, or maybe an entire series of episodes, but we just don't have the time to cover it in the depth that I'd like. And speaking of time, we've come to the end of our time spent covering the life and work of Mary Leakey. And I really hope this episode has done this person justice. She may be less well known than she deserves, but in talking to those who worked under her, a rich legacy of scientists who bring the meticulousness, openness to the collaboration, and the desire to move the science forward would probably make her happier than any amount of additional time in the spotlight. Thanks for listening to the Science Night podcast. If you want to learn more about Mary Leakey, and you totally should want to learn more about Mary Leakey, check out the show notes for this episode at scinight.com. Science Night is brought to you by the River Power podcast mill. You can find out more about this group of creators at riverpower.xyz. I'll be back in two weeks with another interview episode. Until then, have a great night.